0: Well, as has already been mentioned this morning, you may be wondering why we're singing some, some Christmas carols in our service. You might be asking questions. Why are we singing about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ on what is you know, the anniversary of the birth of this nation? Well, the reason why we're doing that is because we're in the middle of a series, not only in the book of Acts, but also interspersed in the book of Acts, a series on the Apostles' Creed. And this morning we're in our occasional doctrinal series and we're on the phrase conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The freedoms that this nation enjoys ought not to be lightly tossed aside. It is a a privilege to be able to gather here as God's people. One that we ought not to uh, take for granted. It's a privilege of joy. And yet as a Christian church, our focus is not ultimately upon one nation, but on the King of all nations, the Lord Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns over his people from every tongue and tribe and nation. So as a Christian church, we we gather together every Sunday to celebrate this king. We celebrate freedom that he has won. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from the consequences of eternal punishment and death. He is whom our whole hearts ought to hope in. And so he's who we celebrate and rejoice in every Lord's day. Now we're, we're pursuing this series in the Apostles' Creed, a doctrinal study. Because we, we want to know what God's word says about our Christian faith. The Apostles' Creed is a, a succinct summary of the Christian faith. It wasn't written by Jesus' apostles. No, it, it, instead, it was written as a summary to reflect Jesus, the teaching of Jesus' apostles. And originally, this creed was um, used in, in, in baptisms. Often, a pastor would ask a baptismal candidate, Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the baptismal candidate would answer, I believe. And then he would say, do you believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord? And and go on with the rest of the statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that candidate would say, I believe. And then he would ask a, a series of questions about the Holy Spirit and the church. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And so on. And the candidate would say, I believe. Do we know what we're saying when we confess that this morning? In other words, when we confess... Uh, our our faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, the Holy Spirit, are are we doing so intelligently and with understanding what are the truths that we are saying? It's one of the reasons I wanted to to pursue this series. I want us to intelligently, joyfully, faithfully affirm our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and equip us to share it as well. If if you look on the, the insert there in your bulletin, you'll see that the largest and longest section of the Apostles' Creed is about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're in really our our second section on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And really what we're going to do is we're going to examine the biblical underpinnings of that phrase. See, those who wrote the Creed were trying to summarize the Bible's teaching. But what is the Bible's teaching? That's what I want us to unpack today. So I'm not preaching the Creed. I'm preaching the Bible that the, the Creed is seeking to summarize. So that's why we're going to look in depth at Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 38 and other important passages which teach us about the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's something we need to keep in the back of our minds constantly as we think about what it means for Jesus to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We need to remember that this line of the creed is not about Mary. It's about Jesus. If you look at the structure, you'll notice that This is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus' conception and Mary's involvement about that. And we need to remember the Creed, the Bible, even when Mary is mentioned, really directs our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's true, though, too. Mary's a model for our faith. Like Abraham was a model. Like Stephen was a model. Like Paul would become a model. Yes, Mary's a model for our faith. But neither Mary, nor Abraham, nor Stephen, nor Paul, or nor any other saint is the object of our faith. The focus of our faith. So we do not place our faith in Mary or any of those other saints for our salvation. We place our faith in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. The sole object of our faith. He was the one who was supernaturally conceived, as we'll see. So that we might be supernaturally saved. That's the point of the sermon this morning, by the way. Jesus was supernaturally conceived so that we might be supernaturally saved. And we're going to look at this sermon, the structure of the sermon is going to be this. We're going to look under two main headings, doctrine and then devotion. Under the heading doctrine, we're going to consider the doctrine of the teaching of the scripture underneath those words, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And then under the heading devotion, we'll ask how these truths should transform our lives. In other words, in what way does this biblical doctrine lead us to delights to praise God, In what way are we to to act in light of it, live in light of this biblical doctrine? What ways should we be devoted to Jesus in light of this truth? Well, let's dive in. First, we want to consider what biblical doctrine this portion of the Apostles' Creed teaches us. And I I want us to begin by reading Luke chapter 1, verses uh, 26 to 38. And I think if you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's found on page 855. If you're using one of the Bibles provided... That passage is on 855. And as we prepare to read, we need to remember what we're reading. We're reading Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel is in many ways something of a biography of Jesus' life. It's a historical, reliable account. Luke has done his work of hearing from primary sources, and he's given an account, a biography of Jesus' life. Luke begins at Jesus' birth, and he works his way through his life, his death, and his resurrection, and his ascension. Now, Luke he only had so much space to write his gospel. So that he included a section about Jesus' birth is significant. That he included this teaching that Jesus' conception was by the Holy Spirit, he was born through the Virgin Mary, is significant since he's had to be selective in what he could include. Now immediately before our passage, I'm trying to help us get into this reading that we're about to take up. Immediately before our passage, if you scan your eyes across it, you'll see that a baby named John was gonna be born. And that he would be one who would stand in the wilderness and cry like the prophet Elijah. John would prepare the the, the people for a great end time event. The coming of God. That was going to be John's role. To prepare the the people for the coming of God. But how would God come? That's what our reading is about. How would God come to earth? It's here that Luke pivots and he announces how God would come to earth. And as I read and as you follow along... Watch for Luke's clear references to Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit and being born of the Virgin Mary. Luke chapter 1, beginning there in verse 26, and I'll read through verse 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, I hope you noticed as you read that Luke was crystal clear about the fact that Jesus would be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. This is how God would come to earth. That's what the angel points out in verses 31 and then there again in verse 35. He points out the Holy Spirit would come upon Mary, overshadow her, and therefore she would have a child in her womb. Luke is also crystal clear about the fact that in verse 27, Mary is a virgin. It's mentioned twice there in that verse. And then in verse 34, you'll notice that Mary, she declares her virginity. Do you see what she asked there in verse 34? How will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, one of the objections to the Bible is that people, one of the objections today about the Bible is to suggest that people in the first century were not as scientifically sophisticated as we are today. But friends, young Mary had a sufficient understanding of science. I mean, her question reveals that she knew where babies came from and how they came to be. She knew the impossibility of being pregnant since she was a virgin. And as Christians, we do not deny that Jesus' conception was a divine imposition on the laws of nature. It was. There's, there's no way around it. Jesus' conception was a divine imposition on the laws of nature. That's what happens in miracles. They're not ordinary. They're extraordinary. Uh, I, I received kind of a great illustration about this yesterday. When I was talking to a, a doctor. He was telling me about how uh, during his residency, he began to, to notice patterns, right? He would listen to a thousand heartbeats and he would hear that pattern over and over and over again. And then when he heard one that was contrary to that pattern, he went, oh wait, something's, something's wrong here. This, this heartbeat is different than how a heartbeat's ordinarily supposed to function. Well, that's what happens in a miracle, right? There's a pattern that we're all living in. There are natural laws in this world like gravity. But then God enters in he, he imposes His divine will in the created order. And something extraordinary happens when the God of the universe does that. Well, that is what happens. God has imposed His divine will in this situation. In miracles, God does just that. And you might say that this conception, this is a supernatural conception. You might say that it's impossible. But I assure you on the word of an angel from heaven, according to verse 37, that nothing is impossible with God. It's his delight to do the impossible. And here we must be conc- clear. Jesus' conception. It was a, a supernatural, a miraculous conception. But it was not an immaculate conception. The, the term immaculate conception refers to the idea that Mary not only found favor with God, but that she was kept free from all stain of original sin. But the truth is, is that's a teaching that emerged from the Roman Catholic Church in 1854. A little over 160 years ago. But it's not found in the Bible. In fact, Mary herself declares her own need for a Savior in Luke chapter 1 verse 47. So just beyond our passage a little bit. If you look, Mary talks about God my Savior. You don't need a Savior unless you need saving. And Mary needed saving like every other human being except the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible's teaching that Jesus, concerning Jesus' conception, is that Jesus was supernaturally conceived. Now we often desperately want to know how, right? How Jesus' conception by the power of the Holy Spirit took place. And the reality is that we don't know a whole lot. And therefore, one of the challenges as Christians that we face is to say everything the Bible says, to affirm everything the Bible says, and then to stop. That's a challenge as a Christian, right? We we need to stop and wonder at God's mighty power. All we know is that Jesus' conception would take place by the Holy Spirit, Coming upon Mary and the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary and Mary miraculously conceiving Jesus by God the Holy Spirit's creative power. Uh, this means that God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, miraculously provided whatever was necessary for the fertilization of the egg in Mary's womb. It, it may be this case that this language about the work of the Holy Spirit is meant to send our, our minds back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. There we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters as our triune God began His work of creation. And here we're told the Holy Spirit would also be present and active when the one who would usher in a new creation was conceived in Mary's womb. When we say that Jesus was supernaturally conceived, we are not saying that Jesus was conceived through marital relations. When, we talk, when the Bible talks about Jesus' conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, it in no way teaches that God had marital relations with Mary. Christians have always denied that. Christians have denied that because if, we, if that were affirmed, then Mary's virginity would be lost. And that is contrary to the biblical record, as we can see there in Luke chapter 1, verse 27 and 34. Jesus was born of the virgin Mary. This is just one of the, one of the many reasons why Mormons, Latter-day Saints are outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, You may not know it, but Mormons actually affirm that God had relations with Mary. And that's how Jesus was conceived. But the Bible nowhere teaches that. Similarly, sometimes Muslims accuse Christians of teaching that God had relations with Mary. Again, neither the Bible nor the Christian church has ever taught that. Mary's virginity remained intact through the miraculous conception. Jesus was supernaturally conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and so one staggered reality of the Holy Spirit's conception is that Jesus had no biological human father. In other words, Joseph, Mary's fiancé and soon-to-be husband, did not supply the seed for Jesus' conception. This is significant too for ensuring the sinlessness of Jesus. You see, because Joseph was not Jesus' father, Adam's sin was not imputed. To Jesus in his conception instead because God was Jesus father because God the father through the power of the Holy Spirit provided whatever miraculously whatever was necessary for the fertilization of the egg in Mary's womb because of that our Savior remains sinless and perhaps this is one reason why the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5 declares that when Christ came into the world God prepared a body for him a body which was fully human a body that was not tainted by sin And a body that was prepared to bear the eternal wrath of God in his sacrifice for sin on the cross. Again, Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, we learn that Joseph uh, refrained from marital intimacy with Mary. And therefore, Jesus truly was born of a virgin. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, I want you to see this. That's on page 807 of the Bibles provided. Here, watch how Matthew, another gospel writer, uh, remarks of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit. And he remarks about Mary's, uh, the, the preservation of Mary's virginity. Follow along as I read there, beginning in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Now notice how Matthew, there in verse 18, protects Mary's virginity. He says, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. When Matthew says before they came together, Matthew means to say, before Joseph and Mary were physically intimate, Mary conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matthew also protects Mary's virginity until after the birth of Jesus. Take a close look at verse 25 again. This is speaking of Joseph. But Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Well, the language of knowing in the Bible has connotations of sexual intimacy from time to time. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we're told this about Adam and Eve. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Right, knowing, in the Bible, sometimes carries with it connotations of sexual intimacy. Matthew is saying two things in verse 25. Number one, he's saying that Joseph was not intimate with Mary until after the birth of Jesus. Thus, she was born of a virgin. Je- sorry, Jesus was born of a virgin. And then number two, Matthew is also saying that Jesus was, sorry, that Mary, Matthew is also saying, number two, that Joseph was intimate with Mary after Jesus' birth. And we know this is true because Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. So for in, um, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we read this. Is not this the carpenter, referring to Jesus, the son of Mary and brother of James? There's number one. Joseph, number two. Judas, number three. Simon, number four. And are not his sisters? Got to have more than one to have sisters. Sisters with us. So it will not do, as the Roman Catholic Church seeks to do, to explain these siblings as Jesus' cousins. That's simply not the plain biblical witness. Uh, These are half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. Since Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, these brothers and sisters are only half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. While Jesus had a, a supernatural and miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit... These brothers and sisters in Mark's gospel, these brothers and sisters of Jesus, were ordinarily conceived by Joseph and Mary. And everyone knows that righteous and faithful husbands and wives seek to obey God's commands to be fruitful and multiply, according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. If Mary was faithful, and she clearly was from the biblical testimony, she would be faithful to this command of God. Marital intimacy is good, right, godly, and holy. And Joseph and Mary were righteous and faithful, and they obeyed the scriptures, and did not withhold from one another their conjugal rights. They remained chaste until after Jesus' birth, and then they were faithful to God's commands and each other concerning the marriage bed. The perpetual virginity of Mary is simply not a doctrine taught in Scripture. Now, some have pointed to the New Testament's references to Joseph as, as Jesus' father and suggested that Joseph was, in fact, Jesus' biological father. You can find those references in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, and Luke chapter 4, verse 22. But what you'll notice when you, when you read them, what you'll notice is that you find them on the lips of those who disbelieve Jesus, who don't believe who he claims to be. What is even more interesting is that when Jesus identifies his father in his earthly ministry... He points to His Father in heaven. So in John chapter 5 verses 17 and 18 we read this, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. Jesus identified God the Father as His Father. There is a legal sense in which Joseph is the father of Jesus. And this is important to Jesus' identity. Jesus was, in a sense, Joseph's legally adopted son. And that made Jesus a part of the line of David, thus securing his status in the line as the promised Messiah and Davidic king. That's why Jesus is connected, albeit at a distance, somewhat at a distance, to Joseph here in Matthew's gospel. But we do have to stop and address something we've been kind of assuming for a little while now. Remember, the line of the Creed is, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We've been assuming that Jesus was born. And the biblical record shows us that He was. So if you scan your eyes down to chapter 2, verse 1 of Matthew's gospel, you'll see the words, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And Matthew, he goes on with his account. Yes, Jesus was born. He was born like every other person here was born. Though his conception in Mary's womb was supernatural, his development in Mary's womb and delivery from Mary's womb was entirely natural. In the words of the one beloved um, Christmas song by Andrew Peterson, it was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. Mary went through a real labor, a painful labor, and yes, a labor of love, because she had a real baby boy. This is important for our faith, and this is where we begin to see the significance of the fact that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was fully man. And that Jesus was born of Mary shows us that he was fully man. Jesus experienced all that we have experienced as humans, including a natural development in his mother's womb. So the the next time you read through the gospel accounts, you read through these biographies of, of Jesus, consider his humanity. Ponder his humanity. See the times where he's hungry and thirsty and tired. He was tempted and tried, and yet he resisted. He was mocked and he was beaten. Jesus... He was fully human and he knows our human experience because he lived a human experience too because he was a human. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, who was tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin. Jesus, he was a baby in his mother's womb, a baby in his mother's arms, He grew to be a boy. He developed into a man. He listened to his parents. He learned and he grew in wisdom. He read the scriptures. He made friends. He wept and he bled and he died. This line of the creed that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary underscores his humanity. But this line of the creed, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, reminds us of his deity too. Remember John the Baptist. Remember we talked about him in Luke's gospel. He was sent to announce the coming of God. And do you see what Matthew tells us in verses 22 and 23 of his account? Those verses tell us that Jesus, in Jesus, God has taken on human flesh. This doctrine of the incarnation is this, that God took on human flesh. Matthew he quotes the prophet Isaiah and basically tells us that Jesus... In Jesus, God has come in the flesh. And Charles Spurgeon put it like this, the great line. If you want to think about the Incarnation, what's the doctrine of the Incarnation? A simple line. The infinite has become an infant. It's amazing. The Incarnation is the doctrine of God taking on flesh. And this is why sometimes in the history of the church, Christians have referred to Mary as Theotokos, which means God-bearer. And the idea is simply that Mary was bearing the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, who is fully God in himself, fully man in her womb. And it's in that sense that Mary is the God-bearer, that Mary gave birth to God. And the doctrine that we're looking at here is astounding and it's awe-inspiring that God would take on flesh to rescue us because we cannot rescue ourselves. And here's another amazing aspect of the incarnation. God told us in the Old Testament that this is how it would have to be. He told us beforehand, hundreds of years beforehand, Jesus' birth. Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. He predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah seven fourteen says this: Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know, Emmanuel. Matthew tells us, do you see there what he tells us at the end of verse 23, what it means? He says it means God with us. The only way that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the triune Godhead, could take on flesh was for Him to be conceived in the womb of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Scriptures would be fulfilled, and this is how we would be supernaturally saved. These two phrases in the Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit... Born of the Virgin Mary, supported by the teaching of the Bible, remind us of the two natures found in the one person of Jesus Christ. This is what theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. The theological term simply means that in the one person of Jesus, the eternal Son of God, being fully God in Himself, took to His divine nature a fully human nature. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, it's on the book nook if you want to read it. It's a great book. In his book, Knowing God, he explains it like this. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man, that the second person of the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, and that he took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine... As he was human. Here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of God. And the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Two mysteries for the price of one. Brothers and sisters, this is a, it's a deep and staggering doctrine. And yet it's so glorious. Jesus was supernaturally conceived so that we might be supernaturally saved by him. And I want to unpack that that last phrase in our next point. Devotion. So if you're taking notes, our second point is this devotion. Remember that under this heading, what we're doing is we're applying the truths of this doctrine that we've just considered. What practical difference does this doctrine make in your life or ought it to make in your life? I want to make at least 10 points of application from this doctrine. I hope to rifle through them quickly. Some of them will be immensely practical, like... They might include something you ought to go and do. And some of these applications will simply be an encouragement to believe and to behold the wonder and glory of Jesus. Some of these points of application will be addressed directly to parents, some to children, others to believers in general, and still to others maybe who are here this morning exploring the Christian faith. So let's begin with application number one. The Bible teaches. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Virgin Mary. So here's application number one. According to the Bible, life begins at conception. The moment that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and supernaturally caused Jesus, the one who was fully God and fully man, to be conceived in her womb, He was a living human person. If Mary's pregnancy were ended the moment after Jesus' conception, The Savior of the world would not have been born. The life of Jesus would not have been lived. And the salvation we hope in would not have been available. But praise God, His plan and His providence were not going to fail at that point. But what we need to recognize is that from the heavenly perspective, Jesus' life began at that point of conception. He then developed in Mary's womb. In the same way every other human baby develops in their mother's womb. So in the teaching of the Bible... Life begins at the moment of conception. And therefore, all life in a mother's womb ought to be preserved and protected. This is why we as a church family rejoice to prayerfully and financially support the work and ministry of Assist Pregnancy Center. Our sister, Leanna, and dozens of others work hours and hours and hours to protect, preserve, and save the lives of unborn children. Consider volunteering. Christian, consider volunteering time with assist. Maybe you could be a, a mentor to a young mom or a young dad. Maybe you could volunteer in other ways. But you can always pray for their work. Pray for their work. Here's application number two. God was sovereign over Jesus' supernatural conception, and He is sovereign over all natural conception. If a woman is to have a baby, God's hand has to be upon her womb. Psalm 139 teaches us that it is God who knits us together in our mother's womb. God is the author of all life. The sovereign God is sovereign over all natural conception. And this honestly is sometimes hard for us to bear. There are no doubt brothers and sisters among us who long to have children. But for some reason God in his providence has not yet provided that gift. His ways are often mysterious to us. He doesn't always tell us why he grants the conception of a child to one couple and not to another. As a church family, we need to make sure that we rejoice with those who have conceived and born children, and as a church family, we also need to bear with tenderness and sympathy the burdens of those who've lost children in the womb or who have not yet conceived but want to. Brothers and sisters, let us share our lives with one another. So, Couples, brothers and sisters, if you become pregnant, ask your church family to pray for that nearly right away. Pray that God would preserve that life in your womb. Pray that God would keep and protect that baby. And let us come alongside you if you suffer the loss of a baby. Let us love and care for you. Share your burdens and your sorrows and your joys as well. Application number three. How many times in this sermon do you think I've used the phrase, born of a virgin? If I followed my manuscript closely, I've mentioned it about a dozen times. Parents, do your children know what I mean by those words, born of the Virgin Mary? So here's application number three, directly for you, moms and dads. Explain the word virgin to your children. Moms and dads, that's going to mean you're going to need to explain a whole lot more to them too. You're going to need to talk to them about their bodies, the differences, the physical differences between boys and girls how boys' bodies and girls' bodies are different, and how that's good and glorious in God's design. And yet, how God also made them to fit together when they're married to a person of the opposite sex. Look, I grew up in a solid Christian home. My father was a deacon in the church. My mother was a nurse. They had the language of the Bible and the technical, scientific language available to them to explain to me God's design for sex. But the truth is, I don't remember them telling me these things. That doesn't mean they didn't tell me these things or teach me about it, I just don't remember them. I'm a little thick sometimes. So I need lessons over and over again. And parents, you will need to give these lessons over and over and over again. You should be the ones who open the Bible and explain these things to your kids. They shouldn't learn them in youth group or in school. They should learn these things from you. And here's the thing, you should begin sooner rather than later. And you should not be embarrassed by these discussions at all. If you give the impression that these conversations make you nervous, kids are pretty good at reading people. They're going to get, my parents don't really want to talk about this, so I'm just not going to talk about it with them. You've got to be perfectly at home in these discussions because you want your kids to talk to you and not other people about these things. And it might, might shock you, but it wouldn't be, uh, a bad thing to begin explaining these things to your kids sooner rather than eight, later. I, I've got four resources that I use with my kids personally. One of them begins at age three. Ages three to five, the basic, simple things about being man and woman, boy and girl, and marriage. I've got one that goes from five to eight. I read these two books probably with my kids every six months or so. These are important things to talk about. There are some great books out there to, to use with with teens or tweens as well. For boys and girls, I want to commend you to finding these resources. Send me an email or something. If you want links or or, or send me a text message, I'll be happy to supply you these resources. But these are biblically based, faithful, uh, that you can use to discuss these matters with your kids and teach and, and talk with them about these things. Brothers and sisters, the truth is that the world is talking about sex all the time. And they're talking about sex in a way that is oriented to personal satisfaction and personal glorification but you want to be the ones who explain a God-glorifying view of sex, where you seek to serve your spouse and bring glory to God in the course of marital intimacy. Explain to your kids the Bible's teaching about sex. Application number four. Learn from Joseph and Mary's example of remaining chaste before marriage. Joseph and Mary knew that God's plan for physical intimacy was designed to take place inside the loving covenant of marriage. They were obedient to God's word and God's design. Let's pray that God would give our congregation a holy zeal for God's plan in this area of our lives. And that means in in all of our lives as well. Application number five. And children, this one is for you. Children, youth, young people, recognize... That Jesus was a child just like you. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus had the same experience that you are having as a child. He didn't get to fast forward through his years. He knew what it was like to learn and grow. He knew what it was like to run and play. He knew what it was like to know better than, and more than all the adults in the room. He knew what it was like to learn to read. Children, Jesus, the Savior of the world, can understand your fears And your weakness. He walked in this world. Take your burdens. Your anxieties. Things that make you afraid to Jesus. Pray to him. And trust in him. Here's application number six. Brothers and sisters, friends. Be amazed at Jesus' humility. In uh, in the words of the great hymn by Timothy Dudley Smith. He came my sinful cause to plead. He laid his glories by. For me, a homeless life to lead. A shameful death to die, or in the words of Frank Houghton's hymn, "Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. All who wast thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor." Brothers and sisters, let's marvel that the eternal Son of God would humble Himself. To rescue us. We know who we are with all of our sin. He came because he loves us. He came to pursue us and to save us. He left his glory to lift us up to glory. Christian marvel at the fact that Jesus was born. That he was poor. In the words of, of the catechism. That he suffered the miseries of this life. The wrath of God. And the cursed death of the cross. This is the nature of Jesus' humility and Humiliation. For our salvation. Give your thanks and praise to Jesus Christ. Here's application number seven. Praise God that this doctrine proves that God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word. We've already considered how God was faithful to keep his promise concerning Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Right? That the the Savior would be born of the virgin. But God also kept his word promise all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Immediately after the fall of man, in Genesis chapter 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he, this offspring, shall bruise your head, bruise the serpent's head, and you shall bruise his heel. God promised in that verse that he would send a son, his son, who would rescue us from sin, death, and the devil. And this was fulfilled in Jesus' birth, life, and resurrection. Death and resurrection. God was faithful to his word of promise. That's what the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. He says this about Jesus. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, the Son himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. In other words, he might crush his head and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps but He helps the offspring of Abraham. Jesus helps those who have faith. Therefore, He, Jesus, had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful High Priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Christian, the doctrine of the Incarnation that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, should bolster your faith in God and in His Word. It should encourage you to trust his promises and to take him at his word. God kept his promises in Genesis and Isaiah and all the Old Testament. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. This doctrine proves that God is faithful to his word and we should praise and trust him for that. Application number eight. Praise God that this doctrine preserves the sinlessness of Jesus. Because Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, Because God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, provided, miraculously provided, whatever was necessary for the fertilization of the egg and Mary's. Well, because of that, our Savior remains sinless. Because the holy and sinless nature of the Divine Son is perfectly united to human nature, we have the perfect and sinless God-man that we need to represent us in life and in death. Both His supernatural conception and His two natures in the one person Perfectly preserve our sinless substitute. The spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. We needed a man to represent us because we're human. And we need God to represent us. God to step in because we are sinful. God is sinless and holy. That's who we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for our sinless substitute, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Application number nine. Praise God that this doctrine rescues fallen men from a helpless state. In a certain sense, that God had to come to earth is in itself a condemnation of sinful humanity. Right? There's no one among mankind who can save and rescue fallen man. God has to step in and do it. So it's a certain sense. It's a judgment on humanity. And yet, it's a declaration that God would be merciful as well. On the one hand, a declaration and judgment that we could not save ourselves. At the same time, on the other hand, this doctrine that God has come to earth is a declaration of God's purpose to supernaturally save sinners like you and me. It is a supernatural wonder and work to save us. And friends, here you need not merely praise God. You need to do more than that. You need to trust in Jesus and the salvation that He has secured for you. For we all... Needs to be saved. We all need a savior. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Except the Lord Jesus Christ. God came to earth to take on flesh. To live the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. The life of perfect righteousness. Perfect holiness. Perfect sinlessness. We are sinful. But Jesus is sinless. And he is righteous too. And Jesus in love. He laid down his life. On the cross. To bear the punishment that our sins deserve. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. Friend, Jesus was paid your wages in his death on the cross. And three days after that, God the Father vindicated him, raising him from the dead. Proving to us all that his sacrifice on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And so all who place their faith in Jesus Christ, all who embrace him in faith, receive all of his righteousness... And are accepted into glory because of the work of Jesus Christ. Friends, trust in Jesus Christ today. Turn from your sin. Confess to God what He already knows. That you are a miserable, wretched sinner. And yet that Jesus Christ is a glorious, gracious Savior. Who paid for all of your sins. Not in part, but the whole. There's not a single sin you will ever have to bear because of the work of Jesus Christ. Friend, trust in Jesus Christ today. Turn from your sin and find salvation in Him. And if you want to know more about that and want to talk with another person about that, I'll be at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that. Or talk with maybe the Christian that invited you to come here this morning. Talk with them about what it means to trust in and follow the Lord Jesus Christ every day of your life. Finally, here's the 10th and final application that I want to offer concerning this doctrine. Hold fast to this doctrine because it is necessary for your salvation. This is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Christian, in this day and age, many want to downplay the supernatural. Many want to dismiss miracles. In fact, this is nothing new. About 100 years ago, there was a controversy called the fundamentalist, fundamentalist Monist controversy amidst Christians. The fundamentalists claimed, rightly, that the virgin birth was a fundamental of the Christian faith, while the modernists essentially chalked the virgin birth up to a religious legend that was out of accord with modern scientific sensibilities. Sadly, the modernists failed to see that a supernatural work was needed to overcome our sinful condition. If you reject the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you reject the Bible's teaching and a fundamental belief of the historic Christian church. If you reject the virgin birth, you call into question the truthfulness of God's word, right? Because God promised there would be a virgin who could see and bear Emmanuel. That's what God said. But if you call that into question, you call into question the whole of God's word. If you reject the virgin birth, you call into question the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. You call into question your very own salvation. If you reject the virgin birth, you call into question Jesus' very character as the God-man. The doctrine, this doctrine, is necessary for our salvation. It's a fundamental of our Christian faith. Why was Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? Because God promised it. Because we needed a sinless Savior who was fully God and fully man. We hold on to this doctrine, not because of the consequences of losing this doctrine are so costly be sure, losing this doctrine is eternally costly. But we hold on to this doctrine because God is true. We hold on to this doctrine because God promised to send us Emmanuel through a virgin and because he kept his promise. We hold on to this doctrine because we needed a sinless Savior and because we have him in Jesus Christ. We hold on to this doctrine because Jesus was supernaturally conceived. And we, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, have been supernaturally saved through him. This is all of our hope, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and give thanks to God for him now. Let's pray together.